Produced at the studios of KBOO Radio in Portland, Oregon, this is Free Culture Radio. Free Culture Radio neither promotes the use of any drugs nor condemns people for being involved in drugs. To the extent that drug use presents problems for individuals or society, those problems are made worse and more intractable when people who use drugs are treated as others and ignored, stigmatized, and even brutalized. On February 9th, the Health and Justice Action Lab at Northeastern University, along with the Yale University Medical Schools Program in Addiction Medicine and the Solomon Center for Health Law and Policy, hosted an event entitled Harm Reduction Services in the United States, a State of the Union. We're starting today's show with some of the audio from that. Here's Corey Davis, director of the Harm Reduction Legal Project. Um, I was just reminded this morning that the you know, the 2022 National Drug Control Strategy on the you know, first page says that our that the North Star of the ONDCP, which theoretically is driving drug policy for the country, is saving lives. And then you read the thing and you see what the administration is doing. And, you know, you realize that, you know, what they're talking about is like we're, are, we're mostly interested, you know, our, our main goal is saving lives so long as it doesn't do anything. You know, that doesn't require doing anything that's politically unpopular um, or, you know, terribly expensive or that's going to really upset anybody at any of the agencies um, or otherwise be a big hassle. But, you know, given those constraints um, where uh, our top priority is saving lives. But, you know, when you look at actual federal and state policy, you see that there are a lot of really low hanging fruit things um, that's, you know, I realize that Congress is, is difficult, but even agencies could be doing it at an administrative level um, to really push things forward. Um, but yeah, I mean, I'd say persistent criminalization, right? I mean, so you have, um, you know, paraphernalia laws are a big barrier in the states. Where do paraphernalia laws come from? Well, the DEI, DEA created a model drug paraphernalia law back in the late 70s. They pushed it on the states. Most of the states adopted it. And that's a big barrier to syringe services programs, to fentanyl test strip distribution. Um, and it has no purpose. You know, it, there's no, it has no purpose other than um, giving law enforcement another mechanism to um, harass arrest, criminalize people who use drugs and harm reductionists. You know, DEA created that thing. They pushed it on the states. DEA could go to the states and say, hey, uh, you know, we made a mistake. Uh, We want you to get rid of this thing. Or even, you know, back in the 70s, this was a good idea. We all hated the hippies, you know, we're all, you know, but the hippies are gone now. And actually now this is a bad thing. So we, we want you to get rid of those paraphernalia laws. As far as I know, nobody, nobody in the administration is going around to the states and telling them that. Certainly no agencies are saying, you want this law enforcement training money? You know, um, you know, you need to get rid of these paraphernalia laws or anything like that. I mean, just one very, very, very low hanging fruit example. I mean, this is a, um, you know, those laws, are, you know. There's absolutely no evidence that they do anything other than than harm people, right? Um, you know, so it's just that, and you, you know, in a million different ways, right? I mean, so um, drug decriminalization, um, 
generally is a, is a good idea, but you know, basically a non-starter everywhere. Um, you know, if federal government dragging its um, feet on the safe house litigation, um, you know, it just, it, so I think that's the big one, right? I mean, you can't, obviously, you know, drug-related harm is, is complicated. A lot of things, um, you know, could be done, but there are some really, really low-hanging fruit that could be accomplished by actually making saving lives the North Star, right? If we actually were going to do that, there are a lot of policy changes, some of which could be done relatively quickly, relatively easily, don't even cost any money, would probably save money. Um, it could be done, um, you know, quickly and easily. But, you know, the action doesn't match the rhetoric, right? It just doesn't. And, and federal agencies, state agencies, local agencies are really getting away with saying these nice things and not putting the actions um, uh, behind them. And I would say, you know, it's, 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 it's frustrating to me as a policy person. It's, it's you know, literally, you know, killing people. Um, and like I said, you know, we have been in the COVID public health emergency for almost three years. We've been in the opioid public health emergency uh, for, for more than double that. And nobody in, in, you know, there's very little action that is appropriate to something that is actually an emergency, right? We've seen, for example, with the war in Ukraine, that if the United States government wants to come up with tens of billions of dollars, um, you know, to do something very quickly, it can happen, right? And if they don't, it doesn't. And, you know, we're seeing that, you know, the, you know, this isn't, you know, you can look, if you want to know what somebody or some organization cares about, look at what they do, right? And the United States is putting a lot of money into you know, weapons to kill people in foreign lands, which is something we really like doing as a country. And we're just really not putting the investments into saving lives at home um, because these are lives that we don't really care about that much. And, you know, you can, it's so, I, I don't know, there's more of a rant than a listicle that you asked for, but um, I think that's the big one. You know, right? It's just really failure to actually change policy to match the rhetoric that says, oh, no, we really do care about people who are using drugs. That was Corey Davis, director of the Harm Reduction Legal Project. Now, here's Mark Jenkins, founder and executive director of the Connecticut Harm Reduction Alliance. I mean, from the federal level, we have to lift that, uh, that ban on purchasing syringes. First and foremost, that will allow a, a, a great number of programs to access some critical supplies. That and even the, the reversal of uh, being able to spend those monies on safer smoking supplies. Um, those are critical things. Um, uh, again, I, I think... Uh, expansion of drug checking um, is, is something that will be helpful. It's uh, 
it's still in, in a learning phase, if you will, in the country. And I, I think, you know, you know, we're testing. We just tested a Xanax bar the other day that had nothing but garbage in it. It didn't even, it didn't have fentanyl. It didn't have benzos. It didn't have anything. It was just a white bar, you know, two milligram bar of, of nonsense. Um, and, you know, so we tested it both on Aramid and on the FTIR, and now we're sending it out for confirmatory. Even put a benzo test strip on it and a fentanyl test strip. They both came out, neg you know, negative. So, you know, we, we tested a blue. When I say blue, it was Smurf blue product that, uh, of course, it tested positive for fentanyl. But the next step is going to be that would was perfect uh, material to be pressed into a pill form. Um, you know, the xylazine and how we see people responding or lack of a response to naloxone or Narcan and people not understanding the actual role still of Narcan, even though we're getting to a point of saturation, some people still don't understand they're looking for people to stand up and be alert. And, and xylazine prevents this and even the, the behavior. So, I mean, if, if I had to have something right now, uh, Ryan, it would be to have, I think for me, um, even though I know OPS is not would not happen right now, but to even at least have some type of observation where we could have increased drop-in to include observation so not everybody is getting hit with naloxone when they're breathing. You know, um, people continue to get doses of naloxone even though they're breathing. And it's because they're not responding. So to be able to have that, to be able to have mobile methadone, because it is one of those entrances into treatment uh, that the majority of the populations we serve, we see, if we can begin to reduce those barriers, make more of those things available, I mean, like immediately available. Um, I think we could really see some differences. And that's really the model that I'm actually pushing for right now uh, is to, you know, in, in, in Boston, they have what it's called the spot. Uh, and I believe it's a supportive place for observation and treatment. Uh, and, and it's, you know, and I've got video after video of people who are unresponsive, but they're breathing. So, you know, they may not, they don't need the lock zone. And I, you, you asked this question and I, I went there. But um, yes, there, there's so much because this continues to morph. But yet the information from everybody else is still so three years ago. So it's like there's continued learning. You have to continue to learn with this right here. And that only happens from dealing with programs like harm reduction, SSP programs that are constantly working boots on the ground, front line. That was Mark Jenkins, founder and executive director of the Connecticut Harm Reduction Alliance, speaking on a panel February 9th that was organized by the Health Injustice Action Lab at Northeastern University, along with the Yale University Medical School's Program in Addiction Medicine and the Solomon Center for Health Law and Policy, entitled Harm Reduction Services in the United States, a State of the Union. 
We'll have more in a moment. You're listening to Free Culture Radio. I'm your host, Doug McMahon. Safe supply, safe spaces in which to consume, decriminalization, decolonization, four simple concepts that outline a drug policy revolution. We come to you from that part of northern Abiyala that is now referred to as the United States. This particular part is also called Turtle Island, a reference to the creation myth shared by several indigenous peoples across this northern region. Farther south is Aslan, which was the Aztec Empire. We now call that area Mexico in the U.S. Southwest. Abiyala is a phrase that means land in full maturity. That phrase is in Kuna, which is the language of people indigenous to the areas now called Panama, and further south to the nation we now call Colombia. Abiyala refers to the whole landmass, north and south, the entire hemisphere. I personally prefer it to Turtle Island, partly because creation myths aren't really my thing, but mostly because it includes Aslan and the area further south, this entire hemisphere. Pretty sure I have some English ancestors myself, though most of my ancestors came from Era, which is of course another place colonized by the English. That country has another name more familiar to you perhaps, a name given it by the English colonizers, Ireland. In saying this, I'm not trying to excuse our presence here on this continent. We can call ourselves uninvited settlers if it feels better, but we came here to colonize, and we murdered, raped, stole, Others may have started the process, but we assisted in the genocide. We share the guilt. As I said, another reason I like the name Abiyala is that it acknowledges the people in the southern part of this hemisphere, the part that many refer to as Latin America, which I think is an interesting choice of name. I mean, Latin refers to the language group of the nations that invaded and murdered and raped and pillaged and stole and colonized that southern part of this hemisphere. Some French, but mostly Portuguese and Spanish. Now, I know what you're thinking. This is a show about drugs, and here I am talking about history and colonizing and stuff. Perhaps you agree with the head of a large state normal chapter who criticized me recently for using, quote, PC woke rhetoric, end quote. But I kind of doubt that because I know you're smarter than that guy. By the way, I won't say which state chapter that was, other than to say that it was on the West Coast, and it is not my current home state of Oregon. So, yes, this is a show about drugs. But the thing is, this is show number 78, and I have yet to make any kind of land acknowledgement. And I'm sorry to say that I still haven't prepared one. I've read a few good ones online. I mean, some of them, the language, I mean, thanking the original caretakers of the land, it's just... I mean, we murdered their ancestors and stole their lands and pillaged their wealth and destroyed as much of their culture as we could, and we're still doing it. Europeans came here and committed genocide, and after gaining our independence from Europe, we so-called settlers have perpetuated that genocide. It's just, we can do better. Obviously, I've been thinking, we haven't done better, but we can. Obviously, I've been thinking about this for a while, and I'm sorry that it's taken me so long, and that I'm still not ready. In another month or so, hopefully I'll be able to deliver a proper land acknowledgement. First, I need to consult with people who know a lot more than I do. For now, as I record this, I am in a place that's currently referred to as Portland, Oregon, which is unceded territory, and the traditional homelands of Multnomah, Wasco, Cowlitz, Catlamet, Clackamas, Chinook, Tualatin, Galapoya, Malala, and others. 
As a European colonizer and uninvited settler on these lands, I apologize for what we have done and what we sadly continue to do. We have much for which to atone and many amends to make. Since, as I mentioned, this is a show about drugs and people who use drugs, I'll break it down like this. Wealth and power are drugs. They're drugs to which European colonizers, among others, and their descendants, myself included, have for centuries been addicted. But we can be better. We can get better. Recovery is possible. It won't be easy. It means removing our blindfolds and looking into the mirror without blinking. That's hard. We'll need a busload of faith and then some. But we have the strength and we have the will. And it's a journey we have to take. Welcome back. As I've mentioned, I currently live in that part of northern Abiyala that is now called Oregon. In 2020, the voters of this state overwhelmingly approved Measure 110, the Drug Addiction Treatment and Recovery Act. M110 was a direct repudiation of business as usual in drug policy. It decriminalized the simple possession of several commonly used currently banned drugs, and it put millions of dollars from the state's marijuana sales tax into programs to assist people in need, primarily people who use drugs, but also their family members and others as well. The measure was in some respects quite modest, and yet it is a direct repudiation of business as usual in drug policy, and it has had ripple effects around the country and around the world. M110 was opposed by people who want more drug war, as well as by people who simply prefer business as usual. Even though M110 was overwhelmingly approved, it is still opposed by those people. I mean, not surprising, really. I mean, they got beat, but they didn't go away. M110 was approved in November 2020. The decrim went into effect at the beginning of 2021, but the funding, uh, that took a while to get flowing, mostly thanks to obstruction and foot-dragging by the business-as-usual types at the Oregon Health Authority. Well, the Oregon State Legislature is in session, and some of the business-as-usual types in the ledge are working with drug warriors to take millions of M110 dollars away from agencies and organizations that are doing really good work and instead throw that money down the rat hole of cities, counties, and the state police. The Oregon Legislature's House Committee on Revenue has been holding hearings on a bill, HB 2089, which would do just that. We're going to hear a couple of the witnesses from the Revenue Committee's February 8th hearing on that measure. The next voice you hear will be that of Janie Gullickson, Executive Director of the Mental Health and Addiction Association of Oregon. Okay, good morning. My name is Janie Gullickson. I am the executive director of the, I believe, largest peer-run organization in the state, the Mental Health and Addiction Association of Oregon. I was also a co-chief petitioner of Measure 110. That's how much I believe in it. And I'm a person in long-term recovery. And for me, that means I have not used drugs or drank alcohol um, or committed any crimes related to that since June 8th of two, June 9th of 2008. We are an organization that, that has over 150 people in recovery working, um, giving back to the community, um, and 30-plus are funded by Measure 110. What I'd like to share with you today is SAMHSA defines the core components of recovery as home, health, community, and purpose. And this measure funded that. 
gave a healthcare approach, gave funding for housing, my constituent, my constituents, that's you, that's me to you all, my colleagues um, here will have shared that with you, um, I'm sure. But what I really want to focus on is with my connections to treatment and the recovery community, when my stepson spent years and years in his addiction, which eventually led him to addiction to fentanyl, I could not get him into treatment quickly. Um, pre-measure 110. The wait lists were enormous, and he overdosed many times. Um, I am proud to say that once a Measure 110 funded program became available and was operational, I got him in within 24 hours. He is in recovery today. So I hope that the funding that has been allocated to Measure 110 remains because, God forbid, anyone's child go to get help, and that door is shut because it was unfunded. Thank you. Thank you for being here. Uh, thank you. Good morning. My name is Brendan Kinzel. I'm a program manager of the Parent Mentor Program at the Family Nurturing Center in Jackson and Josephine Counties. Thank you for the opportunity to submit testimony in opposition of 2089. Our work at the Family Nurturing Center is about helping the whole family to become healthy. We work to dispel the myth that families have to figure it out on their own. We nurture and provide support to caregivers, modeling effective behavior that gives them the roadmap to their future. Following years of poverty, substance use, being in prison, and other traumas, people don't always know how to transition back into society, especially after spending time institutionalized within the Department of Corrections. Coming out can be very overwhelming. FNC is also one of the only local communities in Southern Oregon that offers permanent housing. We served more than 2,400 families last year. Measure 110 funding has enabled us to expand our reach, hire more parent mentors, and ultimately serve more families. Now, rather than being put on a wait list when someone calls our office, they are immediately moved through a screening process and assigned to one of our peer parent mentors. Before Measure 110, our organization could only help families with active child welfare cases. Now, thanks to Measure 110, we can offer services to families further upstream before DHS ever gets involved. Measure 110 has helped us to eliminate our wait list and get more parents engaged in services, and we have 87% client engagement today, which is a huge number. To put it simply, our program works. There's a tremendous need for the services we provide. Measure 110 allows us to sustain and expand these services. As a graduate of vital programs here in Southern Oregon and a father to five children, I can say that FNC has personally taught me how to be the kind of dad I always wanted to be. Seeing other parents learn new tools to help them cope, find recovery, learn how to bond with their children in new ways. How to heal past traumas, that's what Measure 110 is making possible here in Southern Oregon. Please don't cut any funding to Measure 110. Vote no on House Bill 2089. Our communities are counting on us to be there for them. Thank you so much. For the record, my name is Tara Hurst. I'm the Executive Director for the Health Justice Recovery Alliance, and I appreciate the opportunity to share with you our opposition to House Bill 2089. Health Justice Recovery Alliance is an organization that is um, advocating for the swift implementation of Measure 110. We have over 75 member organizations that run the gamut from medical associations, small, uh, culturally specific, linguistically specific providers, 
uh, labor, health care, and uh, small businesses. We are just in the beginning of creating a new system that is going to address our addiction crisis here in Oregon. I am somebody in long-term recovery, I, which means to me that um, I haven't used substances since September 8th, 1996. I know the impact of these services. I've seen them in my community. I've seen them with my loved ones, and it's worked for me and been able to give me the life that I have today. And you've heard from so many incredible providers today who stepped up when the state said that we want to prioritize addiction recovery services, and we need you to step up and provide these services. They've spent hours of their time and their energy and their blood, sweat, and tears to make sure that they showed up for the community, buying houses, uh, securing land, securing offices, hiring peer mentors. This impact that's being happening on the ground when you hear of somebody saving 60 lives, break that apart for a second and recognize that that could have been your brother, your sister, your daughter, your son, somebody that you love. And when it's somebody that you love, you would give anything to ensure that they had these services that they needed at the moment they needed it. So I'm just, we know that you have a difficult task ahead and we appreciate that. We cannot lose any of these service dollars. We have, we are way underfunded in this system and I heard the beeper, so I'll go. Thank you. You just heard Tara Hurst, Executive Director of the Oregon Health Justice Recovery Alliance. She was preceded by Brendan Kinzel, a parent program mentor with the Family Nurturing Center. We led off with Janie Gullickson, Executive Director of the Mental Health and Addiction Association of Oregon. They testified February 8th before the Oregon Legislature's House Committee on Revenue in opposition to House Bill 2089. Now, I'm sad to say that a couple of people from the state's legal marijuana industry testified in favor of that piece of legislation. I understand their thinking, if that's the right word for it. There's an effort in the legislature to increase the state marijuana sales tax. And some people in the weed business are just scared. They had dreams of making a mint on legal marijuana. But turns out, folks just won't pay prohibition prices for legal weed. Those visions of wealth that lured some of these people out here to Oregon in the first place have turned out to be just pipe dreams. You know, which is really no surprise to anyone who's been paying attention. I mean, they've only themselves to blame. And some of these business types are scared that an increase in the sales tax might mean a decrease in their profits. Of course, it probably won't. In fact, smart business people realize that a slight increase in the sales tax would allow them the opportunity to sneak in a small price increase, which would mean more profits. But these other business people seem to think that if they cut a deal and throw their friends and allies under a bus, that somehow the legislature will abandon the idea of a sales tax increase. Oh, who needs that extra money? <laughs> they are fooling themselves, and they are losing friends and allies in the process. All right, well, for now, that's it. Thank you for joining us. You've been listening to Free Culture Radio. I've been your host, Doug McVeigh. A big thank you to everyone out there fighting for civil rights, human rights, and social justice. And thanks especially to you, dear listener, for your support. You make it all worth it. And you make it all possible. Free Culture Radio is a volunteer production for Community Radio, syndicated via the Pacifica Foundation Radio Network's Audioport Service.
Theme music for Free Culture Radio was composed and performed by Tom Nickel and Four Dimensional Nightmare and are used with permission of the artist. Free Culture Radio is available as a podcast or direct download. Find links at the website kboo.fm slash freeculture. We'll be back in a month to continue our examination of drugs, drug cultures, and the influence of drugs on society. Thanks again for listening. This is Doug McVeigh saying so long. So long. Oh, no.